0: You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. Creativity takes many forms and many expressions. We write, we draw, we compose, we sing, we play, we perform. It takes a creative village to construct our culture, our entertainment, our books, our songs, and our movies. We've talked before about how the horror genre is considered a gutter in books and film by the intelligentsia, that there is a chauvinism that seeks to exclude the rude, the outré, the less genteel side of the creative coin. I'm not here to dispute that again. It's an old refrain, and there isn't a horror fan among us who hasn't had those endless and pointless arguments with those who just don't get it. What's worrisome are those artists who attain success and then turn their back upon it. I remember years ago when I was a young interviewer chatting with Christopher Lee on my old Fantasy Film Festival TV show on the Z Channel. Lee is a giant in the genre. His portrayal of Count Dracula in the Hammer films and beyond is considered by many to be definitive. But Lee never wanted to talk about that. He said all of that was way behind him in his career's rearview mirror. He wanted to talk about The Wicker Man, Star Wars, The Three Musketeers, 1941, Sherlock Holmes. All of these, of course, were notable and admirable, but very likely they would never have come to be without the success of those Dracula movies. Basically, he disowned them and did not at all like it when he was asked about them. Fair enough. He deserved to focus on the roles that instilled him with pride, and that is surely respectable. But it made me kind of sad that he dismissed the work that made him famous. So many actors came of age in horror films and never looked back, from Jack Nicholson to Johnny Depp. And good for them. In fact, Nicholson, of course, did Wolf in the 90s, and Depp did Polanski's The Ninth Gate. They never disavowed their early work, but they certainly didn't embrace it. But something that makes me happy is when an actor who attains success in the genre embraces it, realizes that they have contributed something memorable to an appreciative audience. Robert Englund is one of those who has nothing but fondness for Freddy Krueger, the role that shot him to fame after years as a journeyman actor. Another is our guest, Lin Shay. Though she probably burst memorably into mainstream notice in the Farrelly brothers' comedies Dumb and Dumber, There's Something About Mary and Kingpin, the horror community wrapped their collective arms around her for Wes Craven's Nightmare on Elm Street movies, The Hidden, The Critters and Insidious films, Dead End, and many other horror classics. Lynn has treated them all like Shakespeare, giving life and respect to movies in that gutter we call horror, because she, like us, knows our genre deserves it. I was lucky enough to work with Lynn on Critters 2, and we'll have plenty to say about that in our live conversation at the Midsummer Scream celebration in Long Beach, California, after this. In 1979, the first issue of Fangoria was released into the world. It's been 40 years now, and Fangoria is better than ever, each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horrors past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. Head to Fangoria.com to learn more and to, well, subscribe. And while you're there, make sure to enter the promo code POSTMORTEM to save 15% off your subscription. That's Fangoria.com, promo code POSTMORTEM to save 15%. Just as a special note for the fans out there, Nightmare Cinema is coming to Blu-ray. September 3rd, it will be available so you can own physical media just like in the 80s. Fright Rags is the premier place for horror apparel and accessories from all your favorite creature features, slasher flicks, and cult classics. Now in their 16th year, imagine that, Fright Rags has officially licensed products for over 50 films, releasing new collections every week featuring artwork from top industry artists, professionally screen printed on super soft, ring spun cotton shirts. New this week, Fright Rags celebrates the 45th anniversary of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre with two brand new shirts, also available in women's, hoodies, and baseball tees. Listeners, get 10% off your first order. Head on over to Fright-Rags.com and enter code FANGO40 at checkout to activate your discount. That's Fright-Rags.com, FANGO40. Are you a horror filmmaker or an aspiring horror filmmaker? The Nick Taylor Horror Show podcast is your free masterclass in horror filmmaking. Featuring interviews with Joe Dante, Roger Corman, William Lustig, Mitzi Perrone, and yours truly, Mick Garris, the Nick Taylor Horror Show extracts key advice, resources, and insights from the latest and greatest voices in horror. Download and subscribe to the Nick Taylor Horror Show today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere you listen. And don't forget to listen to my episode with Nick where we discussed my own creative writing processes and advice for filmmakers. Visit nicktaylor.com for more information. Hello Midsummer Scream. Hello. Woo. I am, uh, my name is Joe Russo, I'm the producer of Postmortem with Mick Garris, Um, thank you. (laughs) We're so excited for you guys to join us, Uh, we're going to bring out Mick and our guest Lynn Shea, so without further ado, Mick Garris and Lynn Shea. I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem, and we are live in Long Beach, California, at Midsummer Scream. (laughs) And our special guest on this episode has been with us briefly before to celebrate the 30th anniversary of Critters 2, but it's time for a one-on-one with the remarkable Lynn (laughs) Shea.
1: Thank you, Spoken by the remarkable Mick Garris. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that doesn't deserve applause. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so uh, let's talk about the beginning. You, you've been an actress pretty much your whole life. You studied acting in school at the University of Michigan. Tell me what life was like uh, in those early days, the, the Shea family.
1: The Shea f- Well, actually, um, you're incorrect. I did not study acting at the University of Michigan. I was an art history major.
0: Oh, really?
1: (laughs) Goddamn Wikipedia. (laughs) (laughs) However, um, I guess I started acting as long as I can remember, um, as far back as I can remember. Um, In my bedroom, taking all my clothes out of my closet with my animals, stuffed animals and dolls. And I would make up stories, and my, much to my mother's chagrin, <laughs> she would walk into my room, and all my clothes were all over the floor. And I remember making up um, sort of serial stories. So they would, when I had to go have dinner, <laughs> I would sort of put everything the way I wanted to have it for the next day and begin the story um, where I left off the next day. And I don't ever really understand why. I, I um, There were not a lot of kids in the neighborhood, so it was really a very... Solo, personal, imagination, world of my imagination. And I used to act out all the parts. So that was really where I began acting. I was probably seven, eight years old, I guess. Um, and I was always in school plays. And my mother, there was no one theatrical in my family um, Uh, professionally. (laughs) (laughs) However, emotionally, (laughs) we had a very, a lot of drama. We had a lot. My mother was very vibrant and very um, outspoken and very funny. Uh, There was a lot of communication, which I think is a great part of being an actor, really, is learning how to communicate with each other and tell the truth. And I must say, I think that was very much a part of my childhood. And um,
0: well, let's talk a little more about that. Were were your parents interested in the arts? I know your brother, Bob Shea, who has also been a guest on the show, uh, created New Line Cinema and was really a producer and film executive before he became a director. So both of you had a theatrical bent. Was that something that came from your parents, or did you discover it unto yourselves?
1: I think we discovered it unto ourselves, and again, it was supported by our parents, who um, Bob, my brother when he was in his early, I guess he was like 11, 12 years old, he started taking pictures. He was a photographer, and my parents created a little darkroom for him in our basement, and I was the agitator. He would take the photos, and this was in the days way before cell phones, obviously, and um, Bob really took fantastic photos um, that he would develop himself in this little Four by ten darkroom or whatever it was, um, with red lighting. Because and I remember him enlarging photos. He became the class photographer at Mumford High School of all the girls. <laughs> when I remember they would do portraits. You got to choose, <laughs> really. But um, they very much nurtured him as a photographer, and. Um, Uh, So even though we weren't, as I said, professionally theatrical, there was a definite uh, atmosphere of creativity and um, and emotional truth.
0: So do you remember the first time that you went on a stage? Was it a school play or something where you performed for the public?
1: Um, My first play, I played a Native American Indian. And I remember I told my mother she had to get me a long brown turtleneck. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because I wanted to have dark skin and I wasn't sure how else to do it. And I think I had I think I had one line and I don't even remember it. <laughs> so but that was but that was my first um, my first memory of being on stage. But do you I, remember the feeling of an audience?
0: What no. it felt like to perform not just in your bedroom with your stuffed animals, but in front of a group of people like this?
1: I do, you know, I, this made me think of another memory, which was in school, in our music class, Mrs. Keppel was her name. We used to have a, a time where you could raise your hand and perform if you wanted to. And I had a, uh, there was a little, uh, I don't even know what you call it. It wasn't even a poem called The Horsey. And, it, <laughs> and I would stand up and I would bow. I remember that, like I did right here when I walked in, actually. Old memories die hard. Um, and it was go da horsey. The horsey has two legs in the front, two legs in the back, and you would turn around and stick your hand through your legs and go, and a tail in the middle. <laughs> and, and that was the whole piece. That was the whole play. And everybody and you brought would. The house yes, down. I would bring the house down. They all loved it. They all want me do the horsey, do the horsey. So I was given. A, that was your shtick. You were <laughs> that da was horsey. My stick. Yeah. Right, da horsey. So.
0: Your personality and Bob's could not be more different. He's very quiet and uh, he is in, in my <laughs> dealing with him uh, when I was working uh, for him doing critters 2. And you uh, and yet you're both very into the arts. And was that instilled by your parents, do you think?
1: I don't know. Again, I think more just uh, acknowledged and not necessarily promoted, but they allow. There was an allowance of expressing yourself, um, and uh, so I, I. And I think you know who knows what that is. That desire to communicate publicly is really part of being a performer, especially. And um, Bob, Bob tried being an actor for a while. Oh, well he did. He, he wasn't very good. Don't <laughs> tell him I said that. <laughs> He did
0: have a cameo in my Freddy's Nightmares There episode. you have it. He and he was pretty priest. good in that,
1: so maybe <laughs> I'm wrong. He didn't speak. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, I think, you know, again, it's, it's it, being a communicator and uh, being able to convey your ideas in a public way is a very special gift. I don't even call it a talent. I feel... There is some little gift I got given, which um, I enjoy. Uh, I enjoy telling the truth in public, in a private way, which is acceptable. You know, so you're 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 allowed to tell the truth, and and yet you can go home and be safe. It's sort of like you're in a, a very protected arena to to express yourself truly.
0: Well, film acting in particular is something that's very intimate, and it's. Uh, the, the job of an actor is so complicated because you have to touch the rawest, most personal, and most potentially embarrassing parts of your humanity and put them out in the public. So tell me what kind of a quandary that creates for you.
1: It's actually heavenly. Yeah. Because in real life when you express yourself, uh, you are sometimes punished for telling the truth. But in your art, telling the truth Gets you rewarded, and um, so it's a very luxurious profession in that sense. And I maybe all artists feel that way, but especially when you're, um, it's storytelling in particular, and you uh, your emotionality is on display, so to speak, um, and that you are not being punished for crying, being punished for laughing, if it's part of the storytelling. Um, you again are rewarded for it and it's, it's a very luxurious uh, thing to have in your life to be able to be honest and be rewarded for it.
0: I would love to hear about your experience going from being an actor on the stage into the world of film, your first movie movie. Uh, was in uh, 1975 with uh, Joan Micklin Silver, Mm -hmm. uh, Hester Street, which was a very highly regarded film at the time, in black and white, as I recall. Um, So tell me how, I know what the difference is in the process, but how it affected you. This was your first time where you're going through scene after scene after scene over and over from different angles, and, and you're talking intimately with a camera right there recording everything
1: instead of playing to the proscenium
0: tell me how that affected you
1: well there's a, actually a wonderful story about hester street okay. um, i played the part of a, pro, a polish prostitute it's about the um the, the jewish no punchline. N- nope. Uh, <laughs> no. um well there is a punchline <laughs> <laughs> okay good um and um it there's and Carol Kane is it's a wonderful film. It it's about the shtetl life the in at the in the Lower East Side of New York the Jewish community. It's um, at that time in the 1920s I guess it is, and at that time being a prostitute the, the storyline for my character was she becomes a prostitute because she can earn more money she can earn uh, something like 75 cents an hour instead of a nickel an hour, as it seems, in the sweatshops, because most of the jobs were in the sweatshops then in New York. And as a prostitute, she could earn more money to bring her family over from Poland. So it was a very, um, you know, it wasn't at all, there was nothing lascivious about it. It was just a good job to to earn more money. And... um, I had a really nice little monologue. Very, it was uh, describing that. So lo and behold, we shoot the film, um, we do the scene, uh, and right be- and there's going to finally be a screening of the movie. And I invite my parents to New York. I'm so excited because I, I thought, and I have a scene where I'm not, I'm wearing just a garment, and I kind of lean forward, and my breast is somewhat exposed in a very kind of very elegant storybook way, but <laughs> nevertheless Artistic. artistic. So we get to the scene, and that whole thing is cut. All you see is me saying, I have one line to Stephen Keats, and I bend forward, and you see my breast. <laughs> so We can say breast. Could I say tit? Okay. You can say tit. You can say whatever the that fuck you That was really asked. what it was. It? <laughs> well, fuck you. No. <laughs> no, no, no. Now let's stop here. Okay. Wait a minute you ruined my punchline. I, oh. so. <laughs>
0: you ruined your punchline.
1: <laughs> okay, so anyway, so the scene is cut to pieces and and my mother, we're all watching the movie and the end of the movie comes and um, I'm all excited now to see my name in the credits and I'm a little disappointed that the whole speech isn't in there but nevertheless and it rolls the whole thing down the very last thing it says uh, Lin Shay, horror. <laughs> And my mother <laughs> stood up, <laughs> and I go, Mom, and shes she, I see her, she's going past everybody, and she's like stepping on feet to get <laughs> into the aisle. I step on the feet also to follow her, and it turns out she runs out the theater and goes into the bathroom and throws up. Oh. <laughs> so that was my first experience. My daughter the whore. <laughs> my daughter the whore, right? <laughs> With no lines. Yeah. <laughs> With no lines.
0: Well, well, what about that process, though? You were used to playing on a stage, and now the technique is entirely right. different. Right, I didn't
1: answer your question, <laughs> by the way. No, but you had a better answer. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so. Okay. Um. Um. It's still well. You're right. There is. There's definitely a change. Um, but the intimacy um, of which there was <laughs> some in that particular role. But the intimacy of real communi- real talking to somebody. Um, which you know is captured. The nuances of what of what you're thinking and feeling are captured on film, which is something you kind of have to learn about because um, it's much it's so much quieter. You know, when you're in, in a play, you really have to project. I mean, you have to you're talking to an audience. You know, you have to you have to be able to hear me. You have to understand what I'm saying. If I'm feeling something, you really have to communicate it in a in a big way. Um, and still re- maintain the emotional intimacy. But on film, it also has to be a physical intimacy that you, that you convey. And um, I think I got better as I, <laughs> as I went along.
0: Were you, how were you prepared for it when you made this transition? Because this was your first time in a different medium.
1: I wasn't prepared. Yeah, I really wasn't. In the beginning, actually, I didn't even know where the camera was.
0: That's not a bad thing. <laughs> but, um, but so hitting your mark became a technical, it, right. it's had, a more technical process that you had to be aware of, but you could do things over, which had to be something really surprising.
1: That, you're exactly right. That's a, that's a very that's a good way of putting it. Um, because in theater, you make a mistake and you live and die with it, and you just kind of, I had those moments, I think most actors do, where you just totally go up you know, suddenly you don't know where you are and you just have to live through it and the other actors you hope help you out and uh, and on film, if you screw it up, you know, you go, oh shit, like, can we do that again? <laughs> you know, or... You only um, use the good parts. Right, you yeah. only use the good parts and actually, I didn't understand that totally. It was Adam Rifkin when we did Detroit Rock City. Uh-huh. There was a take that was perfect and then it got screwed up technically and so we had to do it again and I never got back what I wanted mm. and I was... Miserable, and I went up to Adam, and we had done like three or four takes of the same scene. And I said, "We didn't get it." He says, "No." He says, "What you don't understand, Lynn, is we're going to take the best from take one, the best (laughs) from take two, and the best from take three, and we're going to put it together. So it's more like creating your performance is created in the editing room. To be honest, Um, when you have those moments where there's a full, uh, you know, a, a through line that you're that they actually keep on camera." Um, you're lucky (laughs) it means you did the you know there was something there that was captivating that they couldn't cut from and I've seen performances of mine occasionally where I go where they cut away from something I was doing which I felt it was at the wrong time Mm -hmm. and it's very frustrating because you can't that's not your choice you know you you, as the actor on stage, you have full control of your own performance. In film, you don't. In film, you what you have control over is the colors you present to the editor and the director. The film is made in the editing room. You could make f- how many different films in the editing room? Yeah. Hundreds, probably. So,
0: well, you you began as a dramatic actress, and then you had quite a bit of success in horror films, still as a dramatic actress, but with a genre bent, and then outrageous success in comedic roles. And there was a sense of humor in a lot of what you had done before the Farrelly Brothers movies. Uh, including Critters 2, where we work together, where Sal is a rather operatic character, and tons and tons of fun, but did you go into it as a dramatic actress, or were those other shades that you you were excited to play as well?
1: I mean, I kind of almost don't separate drama and comedy in some way. I think timing and comedy is a is a very important element. And gratefully, I have good. I, I, I just instinctually, I have good timing. I know. I, I kind of know how to play. I know how to play comedy. I guess I've been told, you know. But um, oh yeah, you do. I do. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, but I feel like um, there there really is no real separation. Again, for me, it's always about telling your story, um, creating the character, uh, and and. Both in, with what's on the page and with your imagination, with also the help from who you're working with, you're given you're given things from the other characters that that you have to respond to. So there's a, a, a whole myriad of of elements that create both comedy and drama, and. Um, I guess in some ways, I, even with Kingpin, and mm-hmm. I mean, I played that character for as real as <laughs> you know. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I really didn't think of her as being you know anything other than Mrs. Dumars. I mean, she had stakes. What? And were, then
0: there's Magda, <laughs> <laughs> the yeah. truth of Magda. Yeah. I
1: love that. I, I loved so, both of th- those. You told me
0: you still have her um, prosthetic. I have breasts. my boobs. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Magda's prosthetic. <laughs>
1: Okay, let's talk about <laughs> Is that all we're going to say about them?
0: <laughs> as much as you like. <laughs> <are. laughs> They're on uh, auction downstairs. Uh, oh, <laughs> <You know>. never. <laughs> <laughs> Those boobs are Hollywood history. So, uh, But you talk about the people you work with. It's impressive the people you have worked with and how you've worked with them repeatedly. Maybe the first director to work with you several times was Walter Hill. Yeah. So you were in Long Riders, and you were in four movies with Walter Hill. Tell me about your experiences with him and and your insight into how he was was to work with for you.
1: They were small roles, and I, Mm -hmm. I... the thing is, for me, it really was there were no small roles, only small actors. I mean, if I had a line, I was so excited to have it and get it and to create something with it, sort of. And when I met Walter, it was kind of a, it was a long story, sort of. Jimmy Keach was a, uh, the Keach brothers, Stacy mm-hmm. and Jimmy, um, James Keach, uh, who are wonderful actors on their own. I used to live in New York. I did theater for years before I came out, almost 10 years before I came out to Los Angeles and we did a production of the tempest it's the only shakespeare i've ever done <laughs> i played ariel I probably couldn't remember it today but um uh i played ariel and james sally kirkland played miranda oh, wow. and james keach played caliban and ferdinand <laughs> <laughs> and we did it at an off-broadway theater off off-broadway theater in new york and it, james keach became a friend i mean we we were friends from uh from that particular production when we came, when I came out to LA, I saw in the trades uh, that they that the Long Riders was being done, and it was a western, which was has always something I've been very interested in. I love horses, and have always loved the the western, the feel of the West, the old West, and that Walter Hill was directing it. So I called Jimmy, and he said, "Hey, I'll set you up with a meeting to meet Walter." So I even remember what I was wearing. I had a little T-shirt, black T-shirt with a um, a tiger on it a big tiger you know bah, you know with the teeth and and I had cut off jeans and cowboy boots <laughs> and i was cute i mean i, <laughs> I have no doubt <laughs> <of that. Yeah. laughs> it was that long ago so anyway <laughs> and they were at uh, Warner Brothers i remember and i remember going in to meet Walter and i i guess cuz i was like just kind of jaunty and i was very excited to meet him and um Very excited about the project, and I didn't even know what roles there was or anything. And um, so he cast me as a prostitute yet again. (laughs) Typecast. Where did this come from? I don't know. It didn't stop there either. (laughs) (laughs) But um, and so um, we'll save that for audience questions. (laughs) Um, But there was actually a wonderful. a wonderful scene in in The Long Riders of, uh, it was, um, Pamela Reed played Bell Star, which was the, the plum role of the prostitute, and she was wonderful. She's a wonderful actress. As prostitute roles as go. Prostitute as prostitute roles go. Yeah. And, um, and it was just this one tiny scene, and um, I just, I remember I'm dancing with Randy Quaid, and... I have my eyes closed and I just remember when as the camera on is I'm dancing with them like I'm and all of a sudden I just open my eyes like this and it's in the it's in the film and there was that kind of moment and Walter noticed that that it was just it was something that spoke about you knew something about her I wasn't I was pretending I was kind of in love with this guy and then it's like who else is out there that I can hook <laughs> and um, so and we stayed in touch and um, I think the next one after that was um, it was Extreme Prejudice and Brewster's Millions. Mm-hmm. And I got these little, just small roles, but he would always call me to do it. One was, a, uh, I think I was a banker. That might have been an Extreme Prejudice. Mm-hmm. I barely remember the films anymore. But I was always honored. I mean, we always come and we, it was a real goodwill between us. And I never had a big role. But they were always, the fact that he call, always called me back and knew he could depend on me to deliver something f- to add to the film. Well, it's um, very
0: meaningful when a director creates a relationship with an actor that they want to complete that, co- continue that relationship throughout the films because it means you have a shorthand together. It means that you understand each other. And you have a number of... Filmmakers you've worked with on multiple occasions, and that says a lot about you as an actress and as a human
1: being Thank you.
0: Well next up would be Wes Craven, and so suddenly you're stepping into a different genre than what you're used to When you were doing Nightmare on Elm Street, and you did a couple of them um, Did you did you know that you were doing something special?
1: Well the first Nightmare on Elm Street Bob Shea, my brother, um, was green lit this movie. New Line Cinema was just getting itself on the map, and they were always struggling. Kind of, he had produced in house, produced a couple of films, and I guess the story is that Wes um, was trying to get this movie set up, and came to Bob, and they decided that they would, you know, co-produce and they would direct this film. So, um, and basically, Bob said to Wes. Put my sister in your movie. <laughs> that was the truth. And, and that's how I got a lot of parts, by the way. <laughs> yeah. I, nepotism is alive and well, and gratefully I was able to deliver enough so that... Um, so. I if you hadn't
0: delivered, that would not have continued. I, you know, No matter what your relationship with your brother was and your brother's relationship, that would have stopped. The fact is, you delivered very memorable performances with filmmakers that wanted to k- repeat the process well
1: that makes that makes me feel really happy and Wes, by the way boy oh boy do we miss him yeah um yep. he really he really Such a wonderful guy I, i've got my famous my famous fabulous another great story about Wes. is i did the two nightmare on elm streets the first one and then i did the last one where i play a nurse mm-hmm. um and then there was a, this is a, my, one of my favorite stories, personally. Um, he was doing The Twilight Zone, a remake of The Twilight Zone, the series that Rod Serling um, did years ago. And there was an episode, and he called me in to read, you know, to, for, um, for a role. And um, the, <laughs> so, and it was, it's called Chameleon is the name of the episode. And the character is sort of a... She kind of is kind of a manifest... It's, it's a science fiction story, as you know. I mean, that's what the Twilight Zones are, all are. And I can't remember the exact storyline, but she's a character who kind of is manifested in the scene and has and tries to... She's actually um, a demon, but she plays it like she's this very sympathetic woman who needs help. And she kind of lures... You know, she makes something bad happen once she's got her victim, so to speak. And... Um, So I played the scene and I played it very kind of empathetically and the casting director and I kind of teared up a little bit and and the casting director at the end of the audition says, "Um, that was really nice, could you do it again a little less sappy? (laughs) (laughs) And I just saw red and Wes was in the back of the room and I flipped him off. (laughs) Not Wes, the casting director, and Wes just put his hand in his his, his head in his hand, and I got the part. (laughs) So, um, and so, and we shot it. And uh, and Wes is one of these rare people with a vivid humanity, a vivid imagination, uh, a vivid affection for not just people, but what's around him, a very aware man, um, humble, gentle, I just loved him. Everybody that worked with him just adored him, and a genius. He was really a filmic, you know, he really did create some of our most exciting films. So the fact that I, after flipping off the casting director, <laughs> he hired me for his for his show was... Maybe that's why he hired me. <laughs> maybe. You it might be. But anyway, so... Um, um, I was grateful that he also kept receiving me, so to speak, you know. And um, I think those were just the three the three projects. But we stayed friends for forever. You know, we were always friends after that.
0: Well, there seems to be sort of a community around the horror genre. I mean, just being here at Midsummer Scream, I've run into so many filmmakers and actors who are friends. And you don't often do that in the course of normal life. You're very much a part of that community of actors and filmmakers around town. And tell me how that feels. It, it In a way, it's like the not-popular kids in school getting together uh, with one another. Uh, as everybody else goes to the prom, we go out behind the barn and smoke. Right. You know, something <laughs> like that.
1: I mean, I feel honored. You know, um, I I never, I've I'm kind of a loner. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, I really, Anybody um, else here a loner? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I... <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I don't accumulate people. I've never been, and I'm not accumulated in any particular way. Um, I'm grateful to feel like I don't need to have people around me to feel to feel happy or to feel um, uh to feel fulfilled in any particular way i am a little bit of an agoraphobic perhaps i I'll go my first thing is you want to go no i'm not going and then i go <laughs> well maybe i'll go all right let's go then, then i'm then i'm the one on the bandwagon having the best time ever but um to be a part of, and appreciated by a community the horror community in particular are some of the nicest people i have ever met and the most um and i mean that sincerely they're loyal not just to we, their friends but to the to the community at, at, at large um, um, there's a camaraderie that is rare there's a lack of competition it feels like it's not a competitive world that We're it's all an in embrace it of yeah, yeah it's an embrace of community and an embrace of world and i feel very honored to be um, very kind of emotional yeah. to be accepted
0: Yeah, well, it is an important thing that people often don't get. And this is true with makers as well as fans in this genre. We're all here together. There are not, I've said this before, but there are not Western conventions. There are not drama conventions. There are not comedy conventions, but there are horror Horror conventions. conventions, And I think it says a lot about this genre and how everybody here wants to be a part of owning that genre. And they feel a part of it. They're not just an audience, they're participants. And I think that's an important part of what we do, tapping into something incredibly personal and
1: intense
0: in ways that other entertainment does not do.
1: Well, fear is a very interesting emotion, um, and that that's kind of what binds the community together in some way. Actually, there was a quote from, I think it was from Wes, who said, it's not um, fear, uh, horror films don't create fear, they... Uh, give you a place to release it right and that there's something about that experiencing uh, that emotion which is scary (laughs) Mm -hmm. to be have alone to experience that emotion in a community and to um you know see a film together that's scary where everybody screams i mean nothing is more cathartic than screaming and you know and carrying on and that the horror genre promotes that and and it and admires it and uh and welcomes it so that we have a place to express our fear as a community. I think is a really important, a important moment of health. That it's actually good health that we've, we're helping each other uh, experience together, especially today. And I have to say something. Oh, by I all have means. to say something. This day, I woke up this morning and read the news, and I just my heart is broken.
0: As, as we are talking, we are all,
1: I, I'm so sorry, yeah. but I really, it was like I, I just thought, how can this all keep happening?
0: There, As we're <laughs> as talking we're talk- and recording this today, uh, two days ago there was a mass shooting in El Paso, Texas. Yesterday there was one in Ohio, and it's just disgusting. And we're living in a world where it's become the norm. And this is not a political show, but right. it impacts all of us, and we're human beings and part of a community. So and you can't help but be affected by humanity around us.
1: Yeah, and I mean, you know, the fact that we can all get together, it, it really makes you... It being uh, being being paranoid or being fearful is... Uh, and private is horrible. <laughs> I mean, you know, and to feel like, um, you know, these people who are just living their lives and have something terrible like this happen, it does impact all of us. And um, I'm to go back to the horror community the fact that we all have a place together where we support each other that has horri- movies some of these movies are horrific but they're movies and that they are a place to experience uh, our deepest fears and there is a lot to be afraid of right now, and I, that's what's really upsetting to me. So sorry for my emotionality, but no, I really... I think it's
0: important to share that, and that's why we're all here, because fear is universal. They, the specific fears may not be, but the general sense of fear and danger is something that we make horror movies and write horror novels yeah. to combat, to, to arm us, to prepare us, to give us strength. And And these conventions here, we can revel in the viscera, right. the, the blood and guts right. thrown at the screen. We know it's fake, but the real thing, the people I know who write and make horror movies or novels and the like, are some of the most sensitive pussies I've ever seen. <laughs> <coughs> I'm one. <know>. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> the real thing, you know, I've, uh, there's more than a couple of the filmmakers in the genre <laughs> I know who I've seen get dizzy at the sight of real blood. Yeah. And uh, I, I've been guilty of that myself.
1: No, it's defi-
0: <laughs> well, there's another visceral form of movies that uh, took a turn in your career, the Farrelly brothers and your relationship with them. Comedy is like horror, something that goes for a visceral and physical response in laughter. You can sit in an audience with, uh, in a drama and not know what the audience is feeling, but in a horror movie, you know if it's working or not with an audience in a comedy you know if it's working or not if nobody's laughing you're dead but three unbelievably hilarious movies by the farrelly brothers and you're in all of them and memorable in all of them (laughs) tell me about that that change of course for a little while in the 90s oh
1: that was an incredible experience for me um uh, well, the first one was Mrs. Noogie Burger, or Mrs. <laughs> Noogie and that was Bobby Shea, who, and I didn't even know that. it was. That's an, a bit of a story as well. Um, I got a call, no audition. They wanted to know if I was available. Available. I was <laughs> like, like, what time do I have to be there? I'm ready to go right now. <laughs> they, <laughs> um, to do this film called Dumb and Dumber that was a new line movie that you know Jeff Daniels, and so I was ecstatic. So I actually called Bob to thank him, and he said, "Don't thank me. Get your own goddamn job." <laughs> I don't. Mean, he was really mean on the phone. I thought, "Oh my God! It didn't come from Bob. Maybe they saw my work somewhere." You know, and I was I was all kind of excited that that, that my work was out there. So I am not sure where we shot it, but it was I'm one sure day. I'm sure they'd
0: seen critters too,
1: and that's what led to that. <laughs> Right? <laughs> Maybe you never know, <laughs> but I. So anyway, I went and did this little role, and I did my homework. I'm I am a Uda Hagen, Stella Adler, Lee Strasberg graduate, so to speak. You I worked with all three of those. All schools? three of those. Oh. Yeah, I did. I mean, I'm a member of the Actor Studio, but but Uta Hagen was truly my. She was. She, she, was I, I, she is still my guru. I mean, I, most of what I do comes from what I learned from, from her.
0: I mean, these are three the three most esteemed names in dramatic um, teaching.
1: I feel so too, and I feel very fortunate to have. I worked with Udo. I was in her class for two years. She had audition for her class. I got in. That was <laughs> <laughs> that was the first good step. It's a big deal. Yep, yeah. but. um Anyway, so I did my work for for Dumb and Dumber, and I had this woman owns dogs, and I asked the makeup and hair if they could do the front of my hair like a poodle, real uh, tight little curls like a like a French poodle, and um, I asked Pete if, in the end of the scene, instead of screaming, if I could whine like a dog, kind of go, oh, 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 you know, and he said he loved it. That was all good, and. Um, so at the end of the scene, I, uh, he said that was that was really great and I said, thank you whatever, <laughs> and um, I went home, and um, I found out later that because my brother about was about two weeks or so later sent me a little note in the mail that was from Charlie Wessler who was one of the producers on that film to Bob saying usually when an executive sends us a family member. <laughs> To uh, To be in one of our movies, we run the other way, but thank you so much for Lynn did such a lovely job, and oh. et cetera. So it was for my brother, and uh, again, so that's how I got that job.
0: So your brother learned to be proud of you.
1: To- well, I don't know if he was, but... Yeah? Well, <laughs> he tell would, me about that. He was, oh, well, now he's, he, I think after all the said and done in... in um, <sighs> His career, you know, he's he's sort of moved on as well, and has a di- another studio that he's created um, called um, Unique Features. Um, and he's been very proud of because he, he, he used to invite, oh I know the story you want me to tell, so because when we used to we used to go places and I was with Bob, he would say he introduced me, this is my sister Linda, she wants to be an actress
0: <laughs> that's not humiliating and, and I was, oh
1: my god, and I would always sort of retreat into the background and um, finally I guess I've reclaimed myself, <laughs> so Bob is indeed, we're both proud of each other and I'm just not, I'm not only proud of him, but from Dumb and Dumb Dumber, Kingpin is, right. is my famous, my most famous story ever. <laughs> okay. Because I saw that they were um, casting this movie called Kingpin. So I called the office I said, hi, this is Lin I was in I had a little tiny part in Dumb and Dumber, and their assistant sent me the script. And Mrs. Dumars is described as the angriest, ugliest woman God ever let loose on the planet. <laughs> Now being a Stella Adler Uta Hagen <laughs> really Strasbourg actress I thought I got to do this I gotta, I mean I got to figure this out and I tried every way I could to get an audition and they would not see me
0: Is so, it because they knew you as
1: Sort of they hmm. said you know we think you we love your work we just don't think you're right for this role and I I mean I tried everything I called Sent notes to Pete. I, so, long, long story short, over six weeks I worked on that character and I found that wardrobe a little outfit which Pete <laughs> later called my clown suit um, at a thrift store on Melrose I started working on um, like I had um, eyelashes coming out of my nose I wanted to have big black <laughs> nose hairs and a unibrow and and yellow teeth and filthy everything and oil in my hair and egg on my face to make my face look yellow I mean, oh. I, mean I did everything I could think of and there I am sitting literally in my bedroom looking at myself in the mirror, and I have no audition. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I'm almost ready to get a divorce. My husband was so over this whole thing. So um, finally, I, I, and then my agent died. <laughs> so, oh. <it> like, <laughs> so there I am sitting on, sitting on the floor with a dead agent. <laughs> no agent, no audition, no hang nothing. Hang on your face. Really, yes. hang on my face. Literally. And, and actually, so it was my husband who said, why don't you call? Because one of the producers had been one of the producers from Dumb and Dumber. He said, why don't you call? with Steve Stabler, who was a great person, wonderful man, who I'd met on Dumb and Dumber. So I said, he's not going to be there. And I don't want to do this anymore. And he said, just call him. It's 4 o'clock. He already had lunch. So I, <laughs> so I call him, and he picks up the phone. And I, and he, same thing, he said, we love your work, Lynn, we know you're interested, but we just don't think you're right for this. And I said, but I worked out this whole thing. And he said, oh. He said, all right, we'll bring you in. So two days later, I dress up exactly as you see in the movie, in mm-hmm. the little outfit and the clown suit, with the egg on my face and the oil <laughs> in my hair, and I drive to Santa Monica. <laughs> to, 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 <laughs> and I, and I was like, I was so excited and so terrified at the same time that finally this thing was going to happen. I got out of the car. The parking lot attendant literally flung himself against a brick wall. But <laughs> 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 I got out of the car and I was late and I said, No, no, no. I said, This is just pretend. I don't really look like this. <laughs> I said, I've got an no audition. And he was just, he didn't know what the hell I was talking about. And And I go in and there, they were seeing kids for the, the film that day and there was nowhere to sit. So I sit down on the floor and I'm waiting and a half hour goes by, um, Rick Montgomery, who was the casting director, kept walking by me back and forth. And finally, I, I, I'm like, they're not paying any attention. I'm going, Rick, and he looks down, he says, Lynn? I said, yeah. He said, I thought you were a homeless person off the street. <laughs> and I was gonna call police. And
0: oh, God. <laughs>
1: So I said, no, it's me. And so he said, so I went into the room, and everybody lost it totally. And um, and I auditioned, and I thought I was terrible, to be honest. I and I was just so But over, you looked great. I looked great. Yeah. Totally looked great. And the next day, I called Steve to thank him, and he said, I'm not supposed to tell you, but you got the job. And, nice. And it literally, and, and I approached that role as, as, with no comedy intended, I mean, I totally I entered that space as as real Shakespeare. as Shakespeare. For me, it was Shakespeare. And Woody Harrelson, by the way, is one of the most wonderful people I have ever met on on a set. He was so support, and you know, I was scared to death of him because he's a big movie star, and here I was coming with egg on my face <laughs> <laughs> and um, and you know, bad teeth. And he loved it. And he uh-huh. totally made those scenes work with me. I mean, he was so happy to have that. T- t- he, we, we had the best time working on that ever. And it's personally my favorite thing I've ever done. It just,
0: and it led to another operatically comedic role with the Farrellies. Yeah. Uh, with Magda. With, who with Magda. About.
1: Who I, They made me audition. I had to go. Really? Didn't <laughs> yep. they learn their lesson? No. Oh, okay.
0: <laughs> well, another... Uh, iconic filmmaker whom you've worked with repeatedly is James Wan. Yes. And uh, let's talk a little about how Insidious began and and, uh, how that, I mean, the fourth one was your movie entirely.
1: Um, I met James because he had seen Dead End, which is a Uh, little film I did in like 2003, I think, with A lot of Dead End fans
0: who uh, have... Asked me to ask you about
1: it. Well, that's sure. what I mean, it's so crazy because that little movie never got a release. You know, I mean, I think Lionsgate owns it, but I don't ever know. Uh, it never had a theatrical release. But James had seen it somewhere and he wanted to meet me and he came. Um, Tim Sullivan, who's also a wonderful director, writer who I've worked with, um, was coming over to my house. And for some, I guess James knew Tim and he said, Oh, I'd love to meet Lynn and because I love that movie. And they had just done Saw. Um, some years before and and James had done a couple other films um, Dead Silence and I forget what the other one is Um, and Insidious was not happening yet as far as anybody knew particularly but anyway he came over and I met him and it was very nice and I gave him a copy of the film and then a few weeks later he asked me if I wanted to do a little video called Doggy Heaven um, (laughs) which is still online it's hilarious it's Lee Winnell who I had not met yet what plays this guy who gets killed and by and by mistake they send him to dog heaven, and it's very funny. And I play this woman whose dog he kills. <laughs> he runs over my dog, and name um, my dog's name is Miss Marple. I don't remember what my name was, but um, a real character. And um, so that's where I met I met Lee and I met James. You know, I had met him that one time at my house, but that was all. And we we had very really a fun time for a couple days. And then it was about a month after that he said he called me back and he said um, we have this movie we don't have a title for it yet but um, we're thinking to shoot this low budget low horror science fiction film um, and I, there's a part I think you'd be good for would you like to read it so um, would I like to read it <laughs> yeah <laughs> and so, anyway he so he so I got the script and I read it at night in bed, and it was one of the, and it was and it was written obviously by Lee Winnell who changed t- font like when, like when things would get scary, the font would get wiggly and <laughs> and bigger and it, and I, there I was in bed all by myself, reading this very scary story and at the end of the th- at the end I I, I I literally was chilled, and I took it and put it in my closet downstairs <laughs> i didn't want to sleep with it in my room. And, um, and I thought the part, I just remember thinking she talked a lot. <laughs> that, was, that was my first impression of Elise. And um, anyway, I called James back and I said, yeah, if you get this done, I would love to be a part of it. And um, we shot it for three weeks in, in L.A. It was very, you know, I think the budget was $800,000. And uh, he got Patrick Wilson and Rose Byrne. He said, I've got my two, you know, top choices. And I think we're going to have a really nice movie and really fun and um, the rest is kind of history. And so, it launched a franchise. And it launched, yeah. like, because then they took it, it got into Toronto, and I guess they showed it at the midnight screening there, and it was like a, a big, huge audience, standing ovation. And James, I remember he called us all in the morning. He was ecstatic. Sony bid for it, and there was like an overnight bidding. By 6 a.m. they had sold it to Sony. And, wow. um, and that was really the beginning of the franchise. And... Elise just percolated. I to this day, I'm not sure I really know. I I, I never quite understood it, but um, because Rose is the one I would have been. (laughs) Rose is. I mean, Elise is kind of this sort of was sort of this side character um, for a while. For a while, but she was the storyteller. Also, I realized that was the 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 key of that first film for the character. Um, that I lead you into the universe because no one knows what the further is until Elise explains it, mm-hmm. and um, it was captivating, I guess. And so, more and more, James said, uh, "You know, we need to write more Elise because people really love the character." And um, the second one, I'm dead, you know, because I die in the first one. So that, and he said to me at the end, he said, "Maybe we shouldn't kill you." I said, ah, don't worry about it." <laughs> <laughs> And so so being dead, they had to like figure out, so in the second one, I'm in the further. But then, then he, they decided they had to do these prequels because people wanted to know more about her.
0: Exactly. So, so
1: there yeah. I was.
0: Well, tell me a little about the life of a working actor because y- your work ranges from large-scale projects to very small, intimate ones. You're going to be in the new Penny Dreadful series that's I coming oh, I'm up. I'm so excited. Oh, which God. is one of my oh, favorite shows Wait until you...
1: S- this this is the, some of the best scripts I've ever read. I mean, I I'm so excited about this project. It takes place Los Angeles, 1938. That's wow. all I'll tell you. It's exquisite. So, and I've got a fabulous role. So Excellent. I'm very excited. Can you tell
0: us who you are in it or not?
1: Um, I don't know how much I'm. Well, I guess I don't. I guess it's been in the news. So I'm. Uh, yeah. Um, I play an old lady, a really old lady who's been around. <laughs> I was born. 1858. Mm -hmm. So when I was born, Ulysses S. Grant was president. Wow. Um, I I am now in my 80s. Maybe they said 80s for if she's a day. So (laughs) I don't know what we'll do. I probably I don't know what we'll do. That's not. I'm pretty close. So (laughs) we don't have to do that much. (laughs) Just no lipstick. (laughs) No, no. But um, so I play a very old lady. who is a Nazi hunter? I'm a real revolutionary. Me and Nathan Lane are sidekicks, wow. more or less. He play He has a fabulous role. He plays a police a policeman, um, and it's people don't realize Los Angeles 1938 was a very very uh, volatile. It was the Hispanic community was being was being tried was being railroaded by big business and by corruption, and um, the Nazis still had warships in our harbors. There was tremendous anti-Semitism. The Nazis tried to take over California. That was their plan, to take over New York and California and take over the United States. And we are not far off. Mm, Um, Hopefully we are very far off. But um, it's really about... uh, So this character is very... she. She, I won't tell you too much more, but she's <laughs> she's fantastic.
0: I can't wait to see that. Now, on the other end of the spectrum is something very tiny and intimate, but you're getting amazing reviews for a very w- wonderful little movie called Room for Rent.
1: Yeah, Room for Rent is uh, a little film. It's on Amazon Prime. You all have to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, it's short. It's only eighty minutes, <laughs> which is a good thing in, the, in our limited uh, our limited attention span is probably a good thing. Well, it but
0: gives you a great opportunity to express a pretty wide range in this. It's,
1: a, it's really the story of a, woman, a, a woman's deterioration, psychic deterioration. Um, it's a woman who has been uh, married for probably 30 years to a man who kept her under wraps, pretty much. Kept her pretty much in the kitchen. Kept her pretty much isolated from the real world while he used her... Uh, Really, is his maid pretty much, um, and he? The film opens where he is dead, and uh, the character's name is Joyce. Joyce has no idea how to navigate herself in the world, and she has to start to learn how to live on her own, and. Um, I am so proud of this piece of work. I honestly have never gotten reviews like this uh, from from The Hollywood Reporter, L.A. Times. I mean, it was a very small film. It it had a a very limited little theatrical release that we did at the uh, Cine Lounge here in L.A. Um, It's now on Amazon Prime we're promoting it for i'm hoping uh, indie spirit stuff and other stuff we're it's well, um, a pretty
0: special performance
1: it's a, it's a performance i've never had the i've never i've never done anything like this before um, it's very creepy that's all <laughs> it's a very creepy film it's not a real horror film but it's a psychological crazy deterioration of a a, psyche. It's a a great
0: opportunity to see what Lynn Shea is capable of doing.
1: Thank you, Mick. So
0: let's open it up to some questions. We have a microphone here for questions from the audience. Anybody who wants to do that? We only have a couple of minutes left, but anyone have any questions for Lynn Shea? Here's your opportunity. Here we go. Right and I'll up.
1: answer anything. Oh boy, <laughs> you don't
0: know what can of worms yeah, right. you just opened. Right. Hello, oh,
1: hi. I
0: was wondering, uh, do you prefer working in genre film, or do you prefer straight film, straight theater?
1: I just prefer working. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have no, I, I love it all. I really do. I'm, um, I haven't done a play in a long time. Mm. Um, but I love, uh, but I love. I love filmmaking. I, I, I mean, I love telling stories. I'm a, and so I can honestly say I welcome whatever comes my way that's got a good story and good character and good people. Those, mm. are, my, those are my priorities. Thank you very much. You're
0: welcome. Thank Any you. Any other questions? Question. This is your opportunity with Lynn Shea. Oh, here we've got one running right up in a blood-covered jacket.
1: <laughs> ew, ew. First, um, I just have to tell how wonderful you both were in Tales of Halloween, oh. which, which I love. She talked. <laughs> <laughs> and, but he's hey. got the hair. <laughs> <laughs>
0: and, Lynn, you just take these wonderful
1: roles. Like your, your role in Abattoir was, oh, is, is, is actually one of my favorites. Thank you. But I need to ask you um, about one of your more crazy roles. The doctor slash shaman in Chilarama. Oh. oh my God, I almost forgot all about her And why is she living on a beach? <laughs> I'm not sure she knows that answer <laughs> <laughs> Crabs? No <laughs> <laughs> she, she was just, where Where did you find that role? Because first of all, I couldn't tell what country she was from this was strange, Neither couldn't <laughs> no, You're asking questions I don't know the answers oh, to Okay <laughs> I just That's wondered, kind. but I just, I honestly thought you were just wonderful in that. Thank you so, so much. You. I mean, we really had, we, we, I always have fun, and it's always fun to come up with something that make people ask questions like that. Okay, well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. And that
0: was a movie that really went for yeah, it. Right. <laughs> in all In all ways. Any more questions before we wrap it up here? This is your opportunity. All right, well, thank you to Midsummer Scream. And even more so, thank you, Lin Shay, icon of every genre. Uh, and thank you for joining me and for your friendship.
1: Oh, thanks, man! Right. Yeah. He's the man. He's the man. Critters 2 is one of my favorite films I ever did, for real. <laughs> <laughs> A timeless
0: classic. Yeah. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Thank me. you for thank coming. Thank you, Lin Shay. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would let the world know about it by reviewing and rating it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you have comments or questions for our Ask Mick Anything shows, send them to Producer Joe at Joe Russo Tweets or to at Mick Garris PM on Instagram or Twitter or the Postmortem with Mick Garris Facebook page. This is a brand new address, so don't forget it. That's at MickGarrisPM on both Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to see my vintage and recent video interviews, making of documentaries, and audiobooks of some of my short stories, go to my website, MickGarrisInterviews.com. Sacrifices must be made. Fangoria's newest movie, Satanic Panic, starring Rebecca Romaine and Jerry O'Connell, hits select theaters and VOD on September 6th. Sam, a pizza delivery girl at the end of her financial rope, has to fight for her life and her tips when her last order of the night turns out to be high society Satanists in need of a virgin sacrifice. Directed by Chelsea Stardust and written by Grady Hendrix, Birth Movies' death calls Satanic Panic an absolutely entertaining horror film that will satisfy any viewer's need for monsters and mayhem. See it in select theaters and on VOD September 6th. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes.